Well, thanks for tuning in for what is sure to be another great conversation today. You know, I actually got the topic for um, today's conversation from my husband, who was relating a story to me about, um, I don't know if you would call it like office drama, but essentially some office drama that was taking place where he works and which one of um, the company that he works for decided in honor of um, a large population of his coworkers to um, host a like a a Diwali celebration of sorts um, in his office. Um, and the reason it became quite dramatic is because several coworkers stood up and said publicly that as Christians, it would compromise their faith to participate in this, which I think was kind of like a lunch um, that they were putting together. Whereas other Christians also stood up in response and said, I'm a Christian, and I don't think that there's anything wrong with participating in this in honor of our coworkers. And you know, this whole conversation reminded me of a series that you, Jim, did you know, years ago now, but was wildly popular. And you titled it, Is It Okay for a Christian To? And you, I mean, talked about a wide spectrum of issues. I mean, if I'm remembering correctly, it was like, is it okay for a Christian to get a tattoo or um, be cremated or do yoga or gamble? There were more um, topics than just that. Smoke marijuana. Smoke marijuana. There you go. <laughs> and I am sure that we are probably going to tackle some of those topics head on in future podcast episodes. But today I want to reframe, I, I want to ask you that question, but specifically I want to ask you, is it okay for a Christian to participate in events or services that compromise their Christian beliefs? Before I get into kind of specific examples of this, can you talk about how a Christian might even begin to think about whether something would be okay for them to do or not? Yeah, I remember during that series, um, I actually put out a sketched out a four-stage grid that I actually made a little more formal and it actually came out in my book after I believe. Um, you can think of it like a four-stage process. Uh, first, with every issue, we want to go to the Bible and see what it clearly says. And when we do go to the Bible, we'll see that we're either given clear permission to do something, clear prohibition to not do it, or a set of relevant principles to navigate the issue. Uh, what you won't find is silence. Um, there may be a firm no, there may be a clear yes, or there may just be ideas and principles and wisdom that helps inform our decision-making or foundational theology that helps us inform our decision-making. For example, somebody says, well, the Bible doesn't say anything about, you know, uh, you know, uh, artificial intelligence or, you know, many of these bioethical issues, I would say, well, yes, it actually does. You have to ground yourself in the doctrine of humanity and what it means to be made in the image of God before you can tackle these issues. So, yes, you do have it speaks to everything. Um, it's the Bible that gives a clear communication and warning about any involvement with something. In other words, you, you, you check with the Bible on something and whether it is OK and the answer is clearly no, then you can stop. You already have your answer. You don't even have to go any further. Uh, an example would be participating in any type of activity that is occultic in nature or has occultic overtones or would involve you with the occult. The same, obviously, is true with a clear affirmation. If you read Love Your Neighbor, guess what? It's okay to love your neighbor, you know. <laughs> um, uh, but what if the Bible doesn't give a ready-made answer lying on the surface of things? Well, that is what will lead to step two in your is it okay to kind of journey. Um, and that's when you take the Bible's permissions and you take the Bible's principles and you relate them to the freedom that we have in Christ. 
not just freedom unchecked, but freedom informed by the Bible's principles and boundaries, wisdom and counsel. But it's not enough to just find out what the Bible says about where we have freedom and where we don't, or even what boundaries and principles should be followed in pursuit of that freedom. The third step is to then think about yourself in relation to that freedom and the principles. Every single one of us is unique. We have a temperament. We have a nature. We have a, a life situation. We have a history. There's areas where we are weak. There's areas where we are strong. Biblically, you may find that there's an area where you have the freedom to do something, but it still isn't wise for you to do it. Maybe seeing a particular type of movie or, or maybe for you, there's freedom to you know, have a craft beer for someone else. It, it, that's 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 not something that they really have the freedom to do because of how they're wired up or past history issues. Uh, something might, might not be foolish for me, but it might not be wisest for you. Which is why the essence of the third step is, is asking, what is the wisest thing for me to do? The answer may be very different for me than it is for you. The fourth step has to do with our responsibility before a watching world. And uh, there are people watching us as Christ followers. We're interacting with people in the context of a, of a wider community. We have a responsibility as Christ followers in terms of how our behavior might be perceived. Uh, there may be something that a Christ follower has absolute freedom to do, and there is nothing in their life that would warn them away from doing it. But if that freedom is not exercised with discretion, then it could be damaging to those around them who would interpret that freedom as a disavowal of Christ. Uh, the Apostle Paul wrote about this in his first letter to the Corinthians, how you can be allowed to do something, but it isn't beneficial, or perhaps it's not beneficial to others. Uh, and Paul's issue, as many will recall, it had to do with eat, whether or not to eat meat that had previously been offered to idols. Uh, he affirmed that Christians had the freedom to eat whatever they wanted. Uh, but if they were in a situation where eating that meat would signal that they too were eating it in worship to that idol, then they should refrain. The context was everything. Public perception was everything. So a lot of people read verses like that and they think, well, I can't do anything that might offend a fellow Christian or a fellow Christ follower. And that's not at all what Paul is talking about. Um, and it's not about legalism. You know, Don't exercise that freedom because you might see another Christian kind of look down their nose at you because they don't think you ought to be doing that, even though you have the freedom. No, it's not about following some false moral legalistic code that is a caricature of Christian morality that in truth doesn't matter to a non-believer's assessment of the nature or object of your faith. If you're free in Christ, you're free in Christ, whether they want you to be or not. This is about handling your freedom in a way that would ensure someone who is not a Christ follower, uh, they would never wonder whether there is integrity to who you say you follow. Hmm. So those are the four steps. That's kind of the grid you walk yeah. through. Yeah. I want to in light of that grid, I want to go through a couple of examples because like you mentioned, the Bible speaks to everything, but it doesn't always speak to every issue in a way that's easy for someone who especially doesn't have much biblical grounding to know what to look for. And um, so let's let's start with the example of let's say you were invited to a gay wedding. Okay. Last I checked, that's not something that Jesus was invited to, that we can just read that scene verbatim in the Bible. But you said the Bible does speak to all of these different issues in different ways. So what are we looking to the Bible in terms of this um, this circumstance? Uh, sure. Now, uh, and this is where, where I love being on a podcast, because this is not going to be a soundbite answer, nor should it be. And even the answer I'm going to give you is extraordinarily truncated and would be uh, there's so much more I would want to say, particularly to the gay community. Um, but let me at least say something briefly and kind of answer this question progressively 
And I do want to say a quick word to those who might be listening who who are gay. Uh, you know, you are so cared about. And, and and as a pastor, I'm incredibly sorry for any and every way Christians and churches made up of Christians may have hurt you and wounded you and belittled you and rejected you. And uh, the truth is God loves you and you matter to him more than you could ever possibly imagine. And your orientation, and yes, I believe for many of you, it is your orientation, not simply a random choice you made one day out of the blue, does not make you a second-class person to God. And, you know, you matter to him and you matter, quite frankly, to me. But I want to say this as we move forward in answering this question so that I don't do a two-hour mm -hmm. treatise on all things uh, between, uh, with uh, this. With acceptance does not come affirmation. Affirmation of you as a person, yes, but not affirmation of a lifestyle. Uh, we, we can't extend that because the Bible does not extend that. Um, so let me say a word about that before we talk about a Christian's participation in a gay wedding, because you can't really talk about that unless you understand what the Bible says about a, a homoerotic sure. lifestyle. To address the issue of homosexuality biblically, you got to begin with God's original design for human sexuality and relationship. This design is found throughout these pages, but just in the book of Genesis, which tells the story of the very creation of humanity, um, which gives us four foundational truths that are terribly important to remember. First, God created sexual identity. Uh, second, that in making sexual identity, he made human beings male and female. That was the sexual identity he made. After Adam, a man, was created, a helpmate was made that was suitable and appropriate and correct for Adam. That person was a woman. Um, third, we find that God created sexual intimacy. Uh, not just sexual identity, but sexual intimacy. And then finally, that God intended the expression of that sexual intimacy to take place between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. That means that femininity and masculinity are at the heart of God's design. Uh, they form the basis for marriage, for the two becoming one. Both genders reflect God's image, and together they reflect and honor God as they join in union with one another. God created man, God created woman, God created marriage, so that their difference would complete one another in every conceivable way, emotionally, physically, spiritually. Which means marriage is more than merely uh, personal. It's, it's more than a contract. It's much more than tax returns and health insurance. And uh, it's a lived out parable of the principles that undergird the universe. It's the foundational building block of human personality and human society. This is why the Bible says that for this reason, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two become one. Now, this brings us to homosexuality. Uh, homosexual behavior, homoerotic behavior, departs from God's blueprint in two foundational ways. First, instead of embracing the man-woman design, uh, homoerotic behavior embraces a same-sex, man-man, woman-woman preference as the blueprint for sexual intimacy. Uh, second, at least until recently, it also departed from God's intent uh, for that sexual intimacy to take place within the confines of a marriage. Mm. Now, I, I want to—I won't walk you through all the verses that speak directly to homoerotic activity in the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament. But suffice it to say that every single reference to homoerotic behavior doesn't speak about homosexual orientation, but fleshing out homoerotic behavior okay. in the Bible. Everything about that in the Bible is a word against it. God created human beings as male and female. 
He meant for sexual intimacy to be there and there alone in the context of marriage. And as a result, the Bible sees any departure from that design as outside of God's will for our lives, including homoerotic behavior. Now, it's important to note, as I mentioned, that the Bible doesn't condemn anybody for homosexual desire. It does talk about following that desire into homoerotic practice, homoerotic relationships. And like any other desire outside of God's perfect will for our life, it calls us to resist that temptation, even if it is within the context of a monogamous relationship with someone of the same sex. That doesn't change anything. It, it's still a radical departure from God's design for that relationship to be between a man and a woman. Marriage isn't something that we make up. It's not something that we define. God did it. Um, and it's not just marriage. It's holy matrimony. Mm -hmm. Which brings us to the question. <laughs> now we'll get to the question. Is it okay for a Christian to attend a gay wedding? Well, even that, we got to break down a little bit. Uh, let's ask first if it's okay to participate in one, and then second, if it's okay to attend right. one. So there's two different things. Um, participating in a gay wedding means lending support, helping to facilitate it, uh, enabling it to happen. Uh, it's being involved in such a way as you're actually one of the ones helping to bring it about. Biblically, that is not something a Christian can do. Hmm. Uh, that is that is facilitating, uh, uh, you know, anti-God behavior, against the will of God behavior, of sin. Uh, all of us have read about the many and varied uh, court cases related to conscientious objection, uh, usually out of a religious nature to serving gay weddings. They're filling the courts as bakers and florists and bed and breakfast operators and caterers uh, are being sued for not wanting to engage in activity that they deem facilitating or supporting the wedding mm -hmm. itself. Like, for example, florist, there was one case in Washington, I remember reading, this is a few years ago, one of the first ones that broke. Um, uh, this woman had sold this uh, gay couple flowers on countless occasions mm -hmm. and had no problem, was never not serving them. She knew they were gay and they knew she was a Christian. They should sell them flowers many times. When they asked her to do an arrangement for their wedding, and, if, and to actually participate in that, she couldn't do it. So um, I know that many Christians are conflicted about such stories. No one wants to see true discrimination take place, but there is a significant difference between serving a wedding and say being a restaurant and serving a meal. Uh, many in opposition say to like a florist stand, want to link it to the civil rights movement right. and the abhorrent Jim Crow laws that were in effect until the mid goodness, 1960s. That's not a fair analogy. Uh, in fact, it's offensive to every African-American civil rights leader I have ever talked to or heard speak about it. A wedding has always been seen as a deeply held religious event. Among many Christians, it's one of the holy sacraments, even. Um, it's not about a, a general refusal of consumer service on the basis of race, gender, or even sexual orientation. It's about forced compliance to what has historically been and continues to be for most a sacred act and people being forced to participate in that in what they would consider a sacrilege of that sacred act is to their minds unconscionable. Uh, these retailers and service providers are not trying to stop the wedding. Uh, they just didn't want to be a participant. They didn't want to be a facilitator of it. So is it okay for a Christian to participate in a gay wedding? for a photographer to shoot it, for a baker to make the cake, a florist to design the centerpiece, to serve as a singer, a musician, a bridesmaid, a groomsman. If you believe that your participation is enabling it to happen, participating and facilitating its act, 
then the answer has to be no. Mm. You would be participating in something wrong. Uh, biblically, that isn't something a Christian can do. But what about just attending? Right. Um, let's say you have a gay friend, family member, and you've been invited to their wedding uh, and they're dear to you. Is it okay for a Christian to attend? You're not participating in a way that is making it happen or helping it to happen. You're not a bridesmaid. You're not an usher. You're just, you're just at the happening. You're filling a seat. You're witnessing it. And you might say, well, didn't Jesus dine with tax collectors and hang out with prostitutes and, and go to parties hosted by people of ill repute? And the answer, of course, is yes, yes, and again, yes. Weddings are trickier. And here's why. There's no doubt that being there in attendance is offering your tacit support. Sure. It's a celebration of an event, and you're at the celebration. Uh, it's the confirmation, the, the taking place of an event, and you're at it, uh, which as a Christian, you can't celebrate it. So if it's not a close friend, if it's just somebody from work, it's, it's probably best to decline mm -hmm. because it can be so misconstrued as to why you're there. But what if it's someone close to you? And I mean close like it's a brother, it's a sister, it's a daughter, it's a son. And no one would misunderstand why you're there. Uh, it's clear you're there for this brother, sister, you know, um, uh, son or daughter. I actually went through this with a family member uh, several years ago. And they this, I, I, I was asked to officiate her wedding. And it wasn't a gay wedding, but it wasn't one that biblically I could officiate. Mm. Uh, and I told her, listen, I, you know, I'm crazy about you and love you dearly. But I, and, and uh, I told her that I would be there for her if, if she would like me to be in support of her, uh, not the event itself, out of love for her, out of being family. My, my commitment to her, uh, no matter what choices she made in life, I wanted her to know, and this is really critical, that my love for her was not something that was doled out on the basis of good behavior or whether she complied with my morality scale. Uh, my love for her was not a reward for that. Uh, my love for her was simply my love for her. And so I said, you know, I, I can't participate, you know, uh, I can't celebrate. I, I've, you know, you've, you've asked my counsel, I told you, but nobody could hold me back from being there uh, to scream to the world that I love you, if that would be something that you would want. And we both know that uh, if I'm there, everyone is going to know why, because you're dearer than life to me, and they know our relationship. And it's, you know, it's not something that anybody could misconstrue. So, yeah, long answer to a, a, a many, you know, many leveled thing. Uh, it's not an easy thing to walk through. It's messy around the edges in all kinds of ways. But I do think the Bible gives us a sense of true north when walking through it. Um, and it's not always going to be easy, but true north in this matter, I think is, is pretty hmm. clear. I think our listeners probably really appreciated actually how you took your time and worked through several specific examples of that because you're right. Like I think depending on your relationship to the person in question, um, it does. It changes the way that you think about it or engage with it. So I think that was that was really helpful. Um, let me give you another um, example. So what if – it could be a friend or a family member. What if they invite you to a religious service or event um, that would not be a Christian service. Anything in the Bible about that? Yeah, I think it depends on the service. I think it depends on the event and the nature of it. For example, um, the Bible is really clear, have nothing to do with the occult. Okay. 
So any kind of service, any kind of thing, you know, religious that is occultic in nature, or then you, you know, you flee. You have nothing to do with that. Uh, many don't realize that a lot of supposedly mainstream religions or religions that are world religions, they don't realize that many of them are deeply occultic from the Christian perspective in nature. Uh, and Hinduism is one. Hmm. Uh, so it depends on the service and it depends on, on why, if biblically you can attend, you know, it's permitted, it's not going to be a violation or, or something where the scriptures clearly said, you know, don't have anything to do with this. Uh, and it could be useful relationally and useful evangelistically, you know, like you're, you've got a friend and you've been having coffees and talking about all kinds of things. And, you know, they are, a uh, 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 whatever, you know, something that's, that's, uh, a world religion, they're Muslim perhaps, or something like that, or something like that, they wouldn't be, um, or you can pick another religion that's not, you know, blatantly occultic like that. And where maybe they just say, Hey, would you just come to this with me? And it's a pretty benign thing that you can go to them with. And it could be like, sure, I'll do that. If you go to church with right. me, can we make it like a swap? And, uh, so if it, if it's helping an evangelistic relationship and it's sell it, you know, that way, and it's going to keep the door open for further conversations. And what they're asking you to do is, is benign. And it's not something biblically, you know, called to avoid. Then I think that it can be sometimes even strategic. Oh, interesting. Okay. All right. Well, so now I have one more example and it, it, essentially it's how we started the episode. I would, I'd love to hear your thoughts about that Diwali example I gave you. Um, are, we can broaden it. Um, so essentially the question would be like, are all holidays and celebrations that have any kind of tie to a non-Christian religion, are those all off limits? No. I mean, Christians wouldn't have problem with at least, at least, um, you know, uh, respecting and appreciating certain things like Hanukkah. We have mm -hmm. such deep shared roots uh, with our Jewish friends. Um, so it's not all. Uh but um, I think the key is if attending or participating involves what is prohibited. I keep coming back to okay. that, such as the occult or, you know, I mean, what, what's, what's unambiguous in the Bible? I mean, worshiping a false god, worshiping an idol, right? That's absolutely unambiguous, have nothing to do with the worship of false gods. That is Old Testament and New Testament. Uh, which is why there was even a problem, which I mentioned earlier in Corinth. And like, if eating this is going to be in any way, like you're celebrating this false God, you know, that Paul's thing. So it, it's an issue throughout the Testaments. It's a big deal. Diwali is all of that and more. Mm -hmm. I, 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 I've been really, it's, it's been really interesting for me. You and I haven't talked about this offline, but it's been really interesting for me as a cultural observer, how it's, it's like this mm -hmm. year in the United States and in the West, Diwali burst onto the yeah. scene and not as a religious event, not as a Hindu event, but more of a, almost a, well, Hindu culture mm -hmm. event and, you know, in Indian culture event, almost like a Greek Orthodox festival or, or, you know, uh, we're going to celebrate the Amish or we're going to celebrate I mean, like a cultural Absolutely. event. But have you studied what Diwali is? It is not a cultural event. It is a, deeply religious event and it's not just a cultural thing like a fall festival it is a spiritual event celebrating primarily two gods worshiping two gods celebrating them honoring them calling on them worshiping them the gods the the goddess lakshmi and and the god ganesha and then along through that many others vishnu and others it, it is it is a celebration of hindu gods and two, a goddess and a god in particular. 
Um, and with all due respect to our Hindu friends, with all due respect to those Hindus who might even be listening to this podcast, exploring the Christian faith, you have to understand that from the Christian faith, this is a stark divide. And, and this is one that, this is one that, and, and if you can show respect to a Christian's moorings, we simply can't cross this line. We, we, we love you as an individual and, and we can, you know, we, we want to show respect to cultural issues, but this is not cultural. This is deeply spiritual and religious. And in our estimation, this would involve the worship of false God, the honoring of false gods, the, 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 the worship of false gods, which we, we, we cannot mm. do. Uh, we, we cannot do, we can't have anything at all to do with it. That's so interesting in light of, I would just say like in light of how often we do that with the celebration of Christmas. Like I think that's why this is so tricky is because it's so easy for us to think about like a, I don't know, to isolate the faith part of the tradition or cultural part of the Christmas celebration. And so we think, well, I mean, anybody could celebrate Christmas, even if you don't, you know, like kind of just bracket off some of that Jesus stuff. I mean, that's basically what they do in every movie or, um, yeah, most books or anything that you would read about it. Um, And so it's like, we're used to that. But you're saying like, but no, that's not actually the wise thing to do. You can't just bracket off the spiritual part and make, make it all cultural. And this is why I, I respect uh, my Jewish friends who say, I just can't celebrate Christmas mm. because I just, it's, I, I don't, I don't acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah. I don't acknowledge everything. I mean, yes, you're, you know, I know that culture says we can airbrush Jesus out and do all the Santa stuff and everything, but you know, I understand what Christmas is about and I just can't get into it. I'm, I'm, I'm sticking to Hanukkah mm. and, and I, I respect that. Yeah. You know, it reminds me of something. I think it was after in the After I Believe book that you wrote, you, you would know better than I would, but you'd written something essentially of people often say that the Bible is really difficult to understand, but it's not so much that it's difficult to understand. It's more that it's difficult to obey it. Like it's difficult to actually read a prohibition that you desire to do and say, okay, I'm not going to do it. Um, so yeah. 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 And I think there's another phrase and I can't remember where I first heard this. It's not original with me. Uh, Christianity is not, is not, uh, it's, it's, it's like the real, the real, what's hard about Christianity is that it's, it's never been tried. Mm. Is that that's the hard part. It's not difficult to understand. It's difficult to follow. It's difficult to practice. And so, yes, it's not difficult to grasp. Well, and talking about things that are difficult, it's really difficult to have some of these conversations, especially when you do find that, you know, I, looking in the Bible, I don't feel like I can participate or I can, you know, um, say yes to this invitation. And so how, if you find yourself in that place as a Christian, we care so deeply, you know, in most cases about the people who extend these invitations to us. So how do we decline without giving people a bad taste for Christianity in their mouth or um, in, in a way that leaves the relational door open? Such a good question. And, and um, you, know, I, you know, don't lie. Mm. Don't lie. But you don't have to dump, you know, a truckload of your faith on them. Almost like, well, here's why Diwali's this and that, and I can't do that. And you know, here's the divide between us. And you know, you know, it, it, you know if it, when the time comes to talk about the differences between the faith and in the context of an ongoing, you know, evangelistic relationship, and and then fine. But that's you know, don't lie, but don't don't dump your entire faith on them. I just use a line like, 
you know, I, I can't, uh, I have a commitment. I have a, you know, I have a previous commitment. Now you may say, well, well, why use that particular language? Because it, you know, you do, it's always true. It's never a lie. That commitment could be, uh, to be faithful to my God. Interesting. That's my previous commitment. Or, um, I, I remember when for years, when I would protect my family day, I, Friday was always my day off. And I, when someone would say, well, can we do this? Would you like to do this? Could we connect? And I said, I can't, I have a commitment. And I, I wouldn't be specific. I would just, I can't, I, I, I have a commitment. And, um, and, and no one says what, what's your <laughs> commitment? Like <laughs> nobody does that. It'd be rude. And if, you know, but, uh, and of course the commitment was to be with my family. Uh, and I didn't have to be specific. Um, and so I think in this case, you don't have to be specific. You can say with great truthfulness, whether it has, is an actual scheduling issue or whether it's just a commitment to be faithful to your God, you can just say, you know, I, I can't, I, I have a commitment. Of course, they're going to interpret that like you have a scheduling mm -hmm. issue, which is fine. You didn't lie, um, but you're being very, very clear. So I would just avoid it to keep building the relationship with uh, them over work or lunches or coffee or sports in order to continue to have opportunities to share your faith and give them a clear understanding of the Christian faith and hope and pray that all of that continues to uh, hopefully, you know, and one day, uh, they cross the line of faith and, and get introduced to who Jesus is and what he can mean for mm. their life. Gosh, this has been a great conversation. I feel like I have a lot of other, is it okay for a Christian to questions now? Um, like I said, I'm sure. Yeah, I listened that was a yes, series. it really was. So like I said, I'm sure we'll resurrect it in some form or throughout various podcast episodes, but I'm building version two. Ooh. It'll maybe over the next several that months. That sounds awesome. Okay. With a whole new crop of issues. <laughs> yeah, we've got a lot of issues to cover, so that sounds great. All right. Well, thank you, Jim, for walking us through those couple of examples. I think that was really helpful. And for anyone who took the time to listen this week, thank you. We'll have you join us again next week.